welcome to the Clearly Product Book Club podcast. I'm Anna Marie Clifton, Product Manager at Yammer. And I am Sandy McPherson, previously founder of Quib and now working on a new thing. Today we're going to be talking about our next book, which we just finished reading a couple of days ago. It's called Hacking Growth, a little subtitle, How Today's Fastest Growing Companies Drive Breakout Success. And it was released uh, earlier this year, 2017, and it's written by Sean Ellis and Morgan Brown. Sean is the person who first coined the term growth hacking, and he's one of the people in the Valley who's most respected for all of his work and thoughts and writings around growth and how to actually achieve growth at tech companies. And he got his start working at some companies that are now big and massive and huge and successful, you could argue, because of his work and input. A couple of those include LogMeIn. He was also working with Dropbox early on, helping them create their referral and storage programs. And then Morgan, I'm pretty sure I'm not positive, but I'm pretty sure those guys first started working together at growthhackers.com, which is an online community that Sean started. Morgan was previously at a real estate company. Uh, He's now working at Facebook. And they both learned a lot in kind of a weird meta way about growth together while working on growthhackers.com. There's a bunch of examples there in the book as well. But Morgan is one of these um, people who has, you know, I want to say like 20 years, many, many years working in digital marketing and growth related things. But yeah, most recently growth hackers and Facebook. So these two guys are, you know, some of the smartest, most up-to-date people on this topic, both because they do it, but also they're a little like meta-involved through watching and learning and observing the space for growth hackers. I think uh, this book you were particularly excited about reading, and I was particularly skeptical. <laughs> uh, Why is that, Anna Marie? Well, there's something about the term growth hacking, and I know the book is hacking growth, not growth hacking, sure. but, you know, sure. basically the same sure. term. Yeah. Uh, there's something about the term that, to me, has a very deep connotations of like, you know, someone 20-something just out of college, a whole bunch of, like, machismo but no actual experience, mm. and just kind of running around with a lot of ego and let's try all the things, try all the things. Yeah, yeah. It's also associated with, like, a little bit of underhanded techniques, yeah. um, dark patterns, which they address in the book. Yeah. And I was expecting the book to be a very hand-wavy approach to, like, oh, look at all these cool tricks that people have done in the past, which yeah. you can't replicate cool tricks that other companies have done very yeah. well because those are, were tricks at the time. And then usually the market uh, accommodates those tricks and they no longer are tricks and Mm -hmm. don't work in the the same scalable way that they did before. Um, So I was really impressed, actually, that the book doesn't go into that side of things, although Mm -hmm. there are lots of fun anecdotes to those points. But the book is really about how to set up uh, this strategic growth org in your company and how to practically run it yep. and how to measure its success. Yep. And I thought of, of all the books that we've read, it's it really is a bit of a playbook. Yeah. Um, and I know that's one of the sections of the book. So, it's, you know, section one is the method and section two is the playbook. And I really took a playbook away. Like, I really feel like yep. I, I have learned things that I can go put into practice yep. even now. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought also that the level of sort of like strategies and tactics that they covered were very appropriate. I think some of the other books that we've read were a little too like, here's one tiny little technique and here's 49 more. And then I was kind of like, how am I ever going to remember? Like, all right, if I'm in this one little tiny corner case that I'm supposed to do X and then Y Mm -hmm. and then Z, whereas this one, this book I thought does a really great job of setting up just like an overall framework 
and then breaking that up into pieces and then helping you to understand like what is the general understanding of those pieces not and they're not overly prescriptive mm-hmm. around like what you must do but more like here's the questions you should be thinking about and here's like the methods that you can go through to mm-hmm. make sure that you're coming up with the right outcomes mm-hmm. and so just like the level of things that they talked about and the practical application i thought was really great and even the fact that they named it a playbook like it mm-hmm. does actually feel like my understanding of what that should be for this type of content. Yeah, I felt that it was both foundational and comprehensive when I was expecting neither. Yeah. Yeah. And so, sorry, so you were expecting it, you had low expectations just because of, in general, most content that you've seen on this topic is kind of smarmy? It's a smarmy term. It's a smarmy term. Um, And so I I assumed that someone who would apply a smarmy term to their book title mm-hmm. wouldn't have a lot of um, substance and depth in the content. And I just, I assume they were trying to attract an audience of like 21 year old bro dudes right. who want to like find the neatest tricks and tips. Right. And that the, the content would be speaking to that. But I found it much more uh, mature content. But again, you know, growth hacking is, it's a pretty widely used term and poorly understood one. And yeah. so it may be a way to attract a larger audience to right. use this kind of sensational headline basically yeah and so just one other like high level thing that i thought might be useful would just be to describe what they define as the growth hacking process which has four steps so the first step is data analysis and insight gathering step two idea generation step three experiment prioritization and then four the final step is actually running the experiment and then you go once you've run the experiment then go back to the data analysis Step one. Yeah, I love it. It's interesting. I I gave a talk recently about the product process at Yammer, Mm -hmm. and it's very similar. I found like a a bunch of things really, really similar to the the rubrics that they've included throughout throughout the book. I really talked more about a three-step process where it's data analysis, idea generation, and then experimentation. And then what you learn from the experiment feeds back to data analysis, and it's this constant loop. Mm -hmm. I really like that they called out prioritization as its own step. I appreciate that. I think it's it's probably more meaningful in a high-velocity setting of this uh, high-tempo testing that they talk about uh, throughout the book, where you you are going to have a significant number of ideas relative to what you can perform against. But I I think, I mean, prioritization is a big part of the role of product management, and I think that's something that is a big part of the process of developing products that I like that they called that out Mm -hmm. explicitly. Yeah. I'm curious. So I, I think this book, we're going to have a, a lot of different things to say about different. Yeah. I mean, I'm working at a uh, quite established company inside a very, very large organization. Yeah. And you've been working most of your career in very early stage startups. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm kind of interested to, to see where our discussion goes throughout the course of this conversation. Yeah. But yeah, first, I, I don't think we'll necessarily disagree. I think it's just that our like what we have experienced on basically any topic that is covered in this book yeah. will have had very different experiences. So then to that point, I'm kind of curious about the the overall process of analysis, ideation, prioritization, testing. Mm-hmm. Like how have you seen that play in, in your role? I mean, mostly, so yeah, so just for context in case I'm not sure if people, I, I feel like we've talked about sort of what we do in our careers previously, but a little refresher. So I started a company called Quib, and I worked on it by myself. And so it's funny, even like the first chapter of this book is like, how to assemble your team. I'm like, oh. <laughs> I guess I wake <laughs> like, myself up in the morning yeah, and I'm assembled. ready to go. So, yeah, I think the one thing that sort of struck me throughout the book 
was the level of process and formality around all of the steps and things that for me, I mean, in theory, I could have like written, like he even talks about, I forget what they were called, but he talks about how you define this document that's like, this is my hypothesis Mm -hmm. and this is the this so that then you can stick it somewhere so that when other people find it and you're sifting through, you can like do it. Mm -hmm. Whereas for me, it was much more of an ad hoc, like, oh my God, this is really important right now. I think this is like a huge potential new lever that I should pull. How should I think about it? Okay, here we go. Mm. There was also, I mean, I did have like a running list of like, oh yeah, maybe I should think about this. I should probably experiment around that, like blah, blah, blah. But it wasn't anywhere near. And I think it would have been a misuse of resources for me to spend all of that time like making little growth future like analysis documents. Yeah. Um, I think like the prioritization process of which features to build can often be a political process. And it's really hard for it to be political if it's one person. (laughs) I could have made it. I could talk to myself in different hats, I'm sure. But I think that's one Um, of the benefits of having uh, things documented and like the rubrics all kind of spelled out in that way um, is when you do need to navigate people who have conflicting opinions and ideas about like what would be the best thing to build. It's good to have something kind of equivocating at the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, in general, I think the whole, the, this process, the four steps were definitely still like I, I followed those, like those were the steps that I took and did throughout working on Quib, but they were not like instantiated physically in the world to mm-hmm. the same degree that I'm assuming things are at Yammer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. S- speaking. So what, did, yeah. <laughs> what was yours? <laughs> or like, what does this look like for you? Yeah. I mean, it looks, it looks very much like this. So one of the things that the authors talk about is the, when you're setting up a growth org, that it would be an independent org from the product org. That's mm-hmm. usually the, the book is kind of written to the concept of building out something that's separate from a product org. And we don't have that at Yammer. We just, we have a product org and Within that, we spin up initiatives that usually last between 6 to 12 months, depending on what we think is the highest priority item at the time. Mm -hmm. And item not being project, but being goal. So we have from time to time had initiatives that would be very growthy. Like, for example, an onboarding initiative would Mm -hmm. be a very much like targeted the activation part of the cycle. Mm -hmm. I guess I should back up a level and talk about the the four areas of growth. Like there's the acquisition, activation, retention, and monetization. Mm -hmm. And so we tend to, uh, when we feel like one of these is lagging or if it needs to be addressed, we'll spin up an initiative of a few people cross-functionally to work toward it. And so in that moment, you could say that that's a growth team, but we don't have a team that's specifically chartered to be always thinking about growth. Oh, interesting. So then it's, does that mean that it's most of your initiatives that are focused on growth-related things are reactionary versus... Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, so the, the initiative-level prioritization is something that happens at the leadership level in the organization, mm-hmm. at the GM and head of product level. Mm-hmm. GM is general manager. It's yeah. kind of a CEO if yeah. you're within a, a larger organization like Microsoft. Yeah. And so the prioritization process is it's kind of complicated. We, we do kind of a, a larger level of the rubric making of, like, here are all the ideas we have for things that might be worth prioritizing. Mm-hmm. And those ideas are at the level of onboarding mm-hmm. or messaging. Like, do we need to help people like message better, message more? Do we need to help people onboard more successfully? And so we have this running list of like large areas of investment mm-hmm. and then um, kind of tallies across of how big a deal do we think it is? Why now? It's around how many users this would impact, how, right. how much reach it has, um, how much uh, conversion we think it would translate into. Mm-hmm. And, and that we update these as metrics change. Like as if anything, if we notice there's like perhaps a dip in some particular metric that's yeah. very core, then we might 
up the priority of the associated initiative idea there. Yeah, because I guess, like, speaking as somebody who, I'm just curious because, like, from, again, for, like, my perspective where, like, I literally, like, I see all of the experience. I've, like, mm-hmm. the whole, like, couple of years, like, that it's happening. I'm, like, running these things. I, like, have the historical memory of this, and I know why things were this way and that way. My first reaction is, like, oh, that must be a little, because you're having different clusters of people each time then working yeah. on. So those people don't necessarily have the, they can go and, like, read up on, like, old tests that were run and, like, what was this and why was it? Oh, and it kind of bled over into this area, but why? But blah, blah, blah. Versus if you had, like, a dedicated growth mm-hmm. team, they would basically own and understand and have, I would assume, more, like, context and familiarity and just, like, gut mm-hmm. sense around what could or should be done versus... Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely one of the trade-offs yeah. is that um, since we don't have a, like a one team that's always working in this area, anytime someone addresses something that's in some pocket of one of these areas, they have to spend a fair amount of time, usually a number of weeks, really getting a background in the area. So before we staff any engineers to initiative, we'll usually have the initiative lead, who is a product manager, work with researchers, analysts, and designers to really understand the space and the history of the space within this particular, uh, within the product. Mm-hmm. So there, there is there is a cost and overhead there. Yeah. Other associated costs are that when you do onboard engineers to the initiative, they didn't go through that process because right. uh, it's quite an expensive process to go through. Um, so we usually have it contained to one or two people doing that kind of pre-work. Mm-hmm. And so you, you, you might lose out on some overall alignment there yeah. and long-term alignment. So... Mm-hmm. And I, I think the flip side of that trade-off, I mean, life is about trade-offs, and no one has all the resources all the time. And so there's a question of, you know, if we feel like our onboarding uh, has hit, like, a really good stride and we're in, like, a really good range there, and there's other areas of the product that we don't have engineers to invest in, I mean, should we keep investing in onboarding or should you right. move, you know, so it's, right. a, it's a resource constraint. Right. One thing that I really enjoyed just with the book in general was how they chose to use terms that I hear when I talk to people. I mean, like, the people in the book, some of the people in the book, like, I've talked to them about growth stuff, Mm -hmm. and we use these words in real life when talking about growth stuff, and they're in the book. And so I was like, oh, this is so great that they're actually... Because sometimes I find that they'll, like, use dumbed-down versions mm. of, like, various acronyms and ideas. Mm-hmm. But in this case, they're actually using the stuff mean, like, that K-factor? real people talk about. Well, yeah, like, aha moment, the NUX, like, new user experience, this, like, idea of a North Star metric. And so I really appreciated that they were actually using the real terms that people actually use. And second to that, like a similar thing was that there's a couple cases where they give examples. We talked at the beginning about how they're not overly prescriptive, but in some cases they give examples of like, here's, for example, what you might do to help with acquisition and initial like sign up conversions. And they give the example of like a shorter sign up flow or inverting the funnel, like flip the funnel. And again, those are like terms that real people who actually do this at big companies use. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh, it's cool that they're both sharing the language and also some of the just, like, general concepts. And, like, oh, of course, if you're doing a new sign-up flow, like, this is, like, the norm, and this is, like, one of the two, three, five things that you should be thinking about, and they share those. Mm-hmm. So it was a really nice balance of, like, here's the stuff that you actually need. You're now, once you've read this book, basically equipped to go and talk to people who are best in the world at this without sounding like a dummy, yeah. which I think is one of the problems is that you'll, like, read a thing, and then you go out into the world, and you'll potentially use overly academic language or you'll just describe a thing that has like an, a jargony term to it, but you haven't learned it. Mm-hmm. And so I really like that in terms of how 
the book can be applicable through the content and lessons, but also literally the language that they are sharing and yeah. like exposing to the world. So I was like, oh, good job. Like, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard to know that when you're reading a book. Yeah. Yeah, because usually you read, and then you go, because, like, I have, like, memories of, like, reading a book, and then you go out and talk to somebody in the real world, and they kind of look at you like, nobody actually says that. Like, and you can tell. (laughs) And then you feel like a dummy, and you're like, oh, uh, whoops. Which, I mean, I guess that's to your credit that you even felt like a dummy, because some people may not recognize the subtle social signal that you said something that clearly indicates you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Or, like, how to pronounce it, like, nux in UX, like, the fact that that's how it's pronounced, or mao. Yeah, that's the one that I remember, where they were like, because I I actually don't even know if it's nux, I just said that. It is Nux, yeah. It is yeah, Nux, yeah. okay. Yeah. But they had uh, for MAU in the book. Mm-hmm. He like they have in parens. They mm-hmm. actually say like pronounced. Yeah, yeah. it's like oh, that's so nice. It's like monthly like, active nice. users. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There are a few things like that. Nux. I've also I see Nui a bunch. New user interface. Um, oh, okay. New user experience with an E instead of an X. There's mm-hmm. a bunch of different ways. ARPU, average yeah, revenue ARPU. per user. Yeah. So yeah, a bunch of things like that that are very very commonly used. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I want to I want to step up a few levels here and talk a little bit about. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> no, that's going down a few levels. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so the, some of the biggest challenges uh, that they talk about are how to culturally establish this in mm. your organization, mm-hmm. and I think that that you you can't speak enough to how difficult it is to change something like this inside an org culturally. Unless you're a company of one. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But if you're working in an organization, so and I'm not even talking about working like within the Microsoft organization, sure. but working within the Yammer org and the product org within the Yammer org and just even an initiative where I'm the initiative lead for a cross-functional group. It's about 10 people. Mm-hmm. And every once in a while, I try and change something up and like experiment with a new process or remove a piece of something we've always done it this way and see like well is it actually okay like is it best to do it that way like maybe we should try that differently and the thing that I keep finding again and again is that it's really really emotionally difficult for people to switch what away from anything that they're used to in terms of like this is the process like you have a kickoff meeting and after the kickoff meeting you have a edge case bash and following the edge case bash you know everyone writes the text back and then the text back gets reviewed by these people and like all these things that are just very subtle cultural expectations that this is the process that everything goes through. Changing that, even if it's like a small deviation, requires a lot of explicit communication. Mm-hmm. Like, you have to say, here's the way we normally do things, X, Y, and Z. We're not going to do Y this time. This is the reason, and this is the new set of expectations. And then you have to say that again the next day. Yeah. And then again the next day, and again the next day, and you have to write it down, and you have to like bring it up in the weekly meeting. And remember, we're not doing X, Y, and Z the way we normally do. We're not doing Y, and we're trying to see, and you know, this is why we're trying it a different way. And that's just for small process changes. And I've seen that. I mean, and, and not to say that there's some like really intense formalization of the process, but there's a, an enculturation of the process that's very difficult for people to step outside of, because when they onboard, this is what they learn makes a good employee. This is how you are successful at your job is is doing X, Y, and Z. Yeah, because I mean, I think there's even like from what I've like seen and heard, there is a certain type of engineer specifically that can succeed at growth related things. Mm -hmm. Like there's certain engineers who pride themselves on writing like really clean, really stable, really robust code that is like efficiently done. And the idea of I mean, if you have, like, a success rate of your experiments of, like, 1 out of 10, Mm -hmm. which is great, then 
you're throwing away. Yeah. <laughs> like, and 90% there's a lot of engineers right. who would just be like, no, right, <laughs> like, I do right. not enjoy this. Like, I'm not right. functioning well because this is not, like, this is not how I perceive creating value through my role. Mm-hmm. And so they're tasked with this thing that is, like, the inverse of how they perceive them creating value in the world. And so it's really difficult for them. So I know that there's, like, when people are looking for growth-minded engineers, again, mm-hmm. specifically, mm-hmm. it's a difficult person to find because it just is so oftentimes against what and how you're trained as an engineer to think about yeah. how you spend your time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that, that's even a, another layer on top of it as well. Because um, even, I mean, and I haven't tried to, to like, institute this rapid uh, tempo testing or any of the, the, a lot of the stuff that they talk about in here. Um, but even just, like, small shifts that I think are, like, well, you know, we, we have this particular set of things that we do in this particular order when we are trying to launch a new feature. Are we sure that's still the best way? Like, maybe yeah. this part of the process. And even, like, shifting that, which isn't to say that it's about playing fast and loose in any way. It's about possibly even playing tighter <laughs> or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, but any shift from what people expect a project process will look like is emotionally difficult for people to remember to keep doing. So you just have to keep messaging it over and over and over and over again. And I find that that's a, a lot of overhead. Yeah. Um, so I can't even, I mean, setting up an entire org to be like, hey, all right, here's the new here's the new playbook. Here's how we're going to operate. It's going to be really, really different. Like you'd have to make sure people know this is going to be very different and that's okay. And here's how it's going to be different. And here's what everyone is expected to do on what type of cadence. I can't overemphasize, if you are reading this book and you want to put this into place in your organization, over-communicate that. One other thing that they mentioned a couple times that I enjoyed that they mentioned was they talk a lot about how your decisions need to be based off of data and you need to, you know, not just pick the thing because it looks like the right, like that is the whole premise. (laughs) It's like you must have the data and have hypotheses and run experiments and test. But there's a couple points where they hint at this idea of it is art and science and a little mishmash of the two. And you can't just be like 100% fully analytical about everything. Um, And they talk about how, you know, after being in this mode and running enough tests and seeing enough uh, experiments come back either as pass or fails, you'll start to get a sense for like, oh, I bet that one would have a big impact versus that one. Mm -hmm. Oh, I bet that one might be a waste of time. I bet that one's not going to matter because of this other one last week, blah, blah, blah. And I think that for me anyway, that was always... Or for I think for anybody who's thinking about growth on an early stage product, this is even more of a thing because you just don't have a lot of data. Mm. So you're constantly at this point of like, do I run this A-B test for two months <laughs> to get like to 95%, like which isn't even really like it's okay, but it's not great. Or do I just, like, have enough sense and understanding of what I'm trying to do that I'm pretty sure I should do this one versus that one? Mm. Um, And then also backing up even further to be, like, how do you start to think about what things you can or should bucket into science versus art? So which things you can have the potential to even collect the data required to come up with a solid decision versus the things that you'll never be able to, and so you should just go off your gut. And so coming up with that, like, understanding and, like, level of almost, like, taste is difficult. Hmm. Product sense, you might say. Product sense, you might say, yes. Which, I mean... But specific to growth stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, I think growth product sense is a subset of overall product sense. Like, it's the same kind of category of 
really difficult to define intuitions around, and really difficult to suss out if someone has yeah. Yeah. <laughs> intuitions yeah. around whether something would be a good idea or not. Yeah. That's, I mean, every every organization that's hiring product managers is always evaluating them on product sense, mm. and no one's really figured out how to <laughs> what interview. That is. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. it's really hard. Like, how do you how do you interview for product sense? Yeah. How do you assess? product sense and so much of it is going to be specific to whatever industry or product you've been working yeah. with as yeah. well. One of the things and I mean it is one of these things too where I think you can get away from the like so- the requirements of the science side by looking at comparable products. So I think I've talked about this before how I'm like a fan of like copying other products mm-hmm. that are big and successful because they clearly have spent the time and resources on those things that you necessarily like or that you by definition as an early stage startup do not have. So go and look at like how Facebook does it. Go and look at how LinkedIn does it because you know they have great teams of really smart people mm-hmm. <laughs> working on it. So why should you redesign your mm-hmm. entire like email invite flow from scratch when you can just look at LinkedIn's and use theirs? It's kind of like the, uh, have we talked about the McDonald's Burger King thing? No, not that I remember. <laughs> I love it so much. So I'm not sure how apocryphal or accurate this story is, but oh, is this about them setting up yeah, the shop? Oh, yeah. Okay, we may be to talk about that. Yeah. So the saying goes that McDonald's used to put a lot of market research and financial resources into determining exactly which corner mm-hmm. to put a McDonald's restaurant on, uh, and they've perfected this over decades. And Burger King sets up shop across the street from McDonald's. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I have like one one little example that came to mind for that was so Quib is it's a social platform, so it's like a social network kind of a thing. And one of the things with social products that's very important is you have to have a sense of actual people being there. And so one of the ways that you can do that is you can have profile pictures be people's faces. So it actually feels more like an actual person. And so when you have this like understanding of talking to a real human versus a picture of a potato. <laughs> and that was one quip, early Quip member's profile picture was he had a picture of a potato for his profile oh. picture. And it was one of these things where it's like I literally like I had no data of like this is going to be meaningful. Like I couldn't test like if mm-hmm. his profile were actually his face, what would happen? Mm-hmm. But I was, I knew that, okay, for social products, it's really important to have a profile and that profile can and should represent who the person actually is. And it's more likely that they'll be able to get more responses. Their links will get more activity. All these things will happen. That will be more positive for them and their experience and the product as a whole and all the other people interacting with them mm-hmm. if it's their actual face. So when people signed up to Quib, I would email them manually and I'd be like, hey, thanks for signing up, blah, 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 blah. By the way, I saw your profile. Like, can you please change your profile picture to a picture of you? Mm. Thanks. And I asked people to do it. And some people were kind of like, WTF? Like, <laughs> most of them did, but there was this one guy. Who, potato guy? He had, uh, so he, I, I started to call him Potato Guy. <laughs> I, I like him a lot now. We're friends. But we had this, like, hilarious first encounter over, I emailed him, and he was like, no. He was like, that is my identity on the internet. I use this photo everywhere. And I was like, well, that's great, but, and it got a little heated. So there's a sense of like, you know what things are important. You understand how your product works. You understand how the flows happen. You understand what sorts of like actions you're looking for, how to encourage those. And there's all these little things underneath that that are too small to be tested, Mm. but that you just sort of understand are important. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to make those decisions in relation to, because they talk about this idea of your fundamental growth equation, mm-hmm. which is just like, how does your product work? And mm-hmm. what are all the like dominoes tipping mm-hmm. that lead to growth? Mm-hmm. And it was being, a, a, so that's one of the things that I find is really difficult is how do you pick out the little dominoes, mm-hmm. pick out the ones that matter to spend time on mm-hmm. when they're not, when you're too small and you don't have any data to actually know 
for sure. And mm-hmm. you can look at benchmarks. You can go off of your gut. But that's um, it's hard. Well, and one other thing that you can do that they recommend in the book is look to writings on psychology. Yeah. And how humans work. Yeah. Um, and so they recommended a few good authors and books. I know Thinking Fast and Slow by Kahneman and Spursky. Yeah. Amazing book. Highly recommend that. And they have the BJ Fogg. Yeah. Stuff. And then Dan Ariely, uh, Predictably oh. Irrational. Yeah. 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 So just a lot of... Ariely. Ariely, yeah. A lot of resources on understanding. I mean, if you're, if you're building a product, we're, we're not yet building products for AI to use. We're still <laughs> building products for humans. So maybe do some research on how humans work. Um, and I think that's a great shortcut. A, if you're not working in a, a product org right now, you can get yourself kind of a, a jump start on product sense by understanding human sense uh, and psychology. And B, even if you are working in a product org, you can always like learn more <laughs> uh, and learn faster by leaning, you know, leaning on those who have come before us. So highly recommend. So one of the things that you were just saying is that sometimes you don't have many data to refer to when you're trying to make decisions, or you don't necessarily have like a plethora of users, perhaps, that you can have multivariate tests running yep. against. And at one point that I thought was kind of interesting is the, uh, the little anecdote about what John Egan is doing at Pinterest with uh, CopyTune, which mm. is a product that they've built to tune exactly what the copywriting is in every push notification. And they're running all these various tests to, yeah. to check. It's like, does it say, hi, first name, hi, exclamation point, hi, no exclamation point. Like, hey. Very, yeah, yeah, like very small. <laughs> teeny, teeny, uh, tiny optimizations. Yeah, and they have, you know, they're at a scale where those optimizations are meaningful and they can test against that. So one of the things I, I want to talk a little bit about is this point about data. And I think data is, it's, it's one of the hardest parts, getting the data and getting it accurately. I really love the story they had of Naomi at Facebook, who was the first PM at Facebook. Was she first? I think she was the first PM on the growth team. Well, she started the growth team at Facebook, but I think she was also the first Facebook PM. Yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, she's also still at Facebook, VP of product and something, 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 something. And they have this great story of they stopped all growth efforts at one point. um, And she, she called a halt to every growth experiment that they were thinking about doing for an entire month and just had the team work on adding instrumentation and adding logging to their product. And I think that that is just so important. And there's, I can't imagine how much she had to fight, especially at a company like Facebook, especially that early when they were still very much the move fast and break things, which, I mean, this was like in 2009, I think. She convinced people to stop experimenting and just add logging for a month. That must have been a really, really hard battle, but so important. And data is really fascinating, and I imagine you haven't had experience with this, but it's really unclear who is responsible for log event names because engineers are the ones who have to build the log events, and they're the ones that you know have to set at what point in the code which event will be called. But analysts are the ones who consume that data. So an engineer and an engineering manager is never going to look at the output of consumer effects on their product and be like, oh, this log event was like should be named better. Like that's poor work on you. Like you're not gonna get that promotion. But analysts and data scientists feel that pain every day. Like, oh, this inconsistently named or uh, this one like goes into the table that it shouldn't or things like that if they're not responsible for the pipeline too. And this is something that I've I've seen at several companies now and heard of at more companies as well that it's really difficult to figure out who should own the logging infrastructure overall, like who owns the names of the events. Um, and I, I mean, the solution that I've come to is that the, the data scientists should have documentation on how things should be created, and that should be part of the onboarding for every engineer. 
I have not seen that happen yet today mm-hmm. at Yammer. I know I was at, when I was at Asana that we had like a big meeting about this at one point. Um, not a big meeting, like six people. But we were, that was one of the big initiatives for the data team that episode uh, was to to create this documentation because there was so much consternation over log event misnames or misnomers or just, you know, there's there's no definition for what you should call these log events and it's impossible to aggregate them accurately or if you want to go look for some log events, like you don't even know what they're supposed to be called. It's so difficult. And yeah, for anyone who's thinking about setting up a growth org or anything like that, I would encourage you to spend a fair amount of time thinking about how you want people to be logging things and then write it down and make that mandatory to consume. That's my my soapbox. <laughs> so somewhat related is just the idea of tools and dashboard stuff. So they talk about both of those things in the book, which again, I was like, great, I'm really happy they're covering this. I know that, uh, I mean, for me anyway, again, with Quib, I definitely used some services, so I used, I mean, I used a bunch of them. I used Mixpanel, I used Intercom, uh, a little bit of Google Analytics, Optimizely, those in terms of like growth stuff, I guess those were the main ones. But then I also had my own custom dashboards that were logging stuff. Oh, I guess like SendGrid as well has its own stats. But it was interesting because still, like, none of those, even though I had all of those, none of them quite fully were able to capture and spit back at me the data that I was looking for. So I had my own custom dashboards as well. A couple of those were just related to the fact that there was, like, a little bit of a difference in, like, for me, like, WAU, MAU was important because, like, sometimes new stuff wasn't necessarily a a DAU type thing, and I Mm -hmm. wanted to be able to, like, have a, a quicker read on what was WAU. Were you looking um, more at weekly than than monthly? What was your... So, in terms tangent. of my... Yeah, yeah, tangent. So, the North Star for Quib was always um, MAU. Mm-hmm. So, the understanding... And again, this was... Monthly um, active users. M- yes. <laughs> Why, thank you for the uh, helpful... Acronym yes, expansion. Yes. Um, and it was one of these situations where, again, this question of what is your, they call it in the book, your fundamental growth equation, and it was like stepping way back and being like, okay, what and how does Quib function? How do people join? What do retain users do? What do people who churn do? How do they interact? People who are just interacting with the web app, where do the email people come in, how much stuff have to be shared, where do they share it, blah, like all of this like stuff that comes together. They give some examples in the book of like the fundamental growth equations for various products. So yeah, so working through all of that and thinking about all of that stuff, what seemed to be most the North Star for what Quib should have at the time was increasing MAU. So I was always focused on like by what percentage is MAU going up. But that's something also that like even with so kind of yeah back to the tools and dashboard stuff was something that was great in having a custom dashboard that I could be very thoughtful about like okay I want to be able to see like applicants that sign up on a weekly basis and what percentage increase or decrease is that versus the previous week mm. and like having all of that like building that out in mixed panel is mm-hmm. a little clunky mm. and so I find that even when, like talking to a lot of people who are working on startups today, most of them have a custom, um, a custom dashboard, yeah. and they're tracking their own stuff. And then the other issue is that I had an interesting conversation a few months ago now where someone was using 
a product that I don't remember, and I probably shouldn't say anyway, because I'll just say bad things about it, but they found that it was really lossy. Like, they found oh, yeah. they were running their own custom dashboard, and they were contemplating using this new service, and so they hooked it all up, and then they looked at it, and they were losing, like, 10% of all their events. Uh. And I was like, oh. And so they decided, obviously, not to use yeah. it. And it's probably, again, it's, like, more important later on once you're bigger and the types of wins that you're looking for are smaller percentages, and so accuracy and precision is more important. But you need to have that stuff at the beginning. And so being thoughtful at the very beginning about, okay, what do we actually need? What are we going to build on our own dashboard? And I would I would argue from what I've seen in my own experience that you probably can't just get away with using off-the-shelf solutions. Yeah. And if you, you know, are a small startup that's actually raised some money or something, or if you work at a big company that's now sort of realizing, oh, shit, we need to actually, <laughs> like, do data things. Mm-hmm. Um it seems that going custom is still, unfortunately or fortunately, the only real option. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Yammer side, we've been custom for, I mean, I think before, I mean, before acquisition, so like definitely 2012 at the latest. Yeah, I have some notes on this as well. Like you can, even if you have all of your events well logged and you actually are collecting all the individual pieces of data, building stories out of that, building these dashboards and these funnels and these cohorts, which are stories, is really time consuming. So we have a number of dashboards that are always up to date because they're super high high visibility across leadership. But if we ever want to like build a, a specific dashboard for a project or things like that, takes a lot of effort to convince people that, like, yes, we should do this. Um, it's still not a very easy thing to do, which is kind of unfortunate. And I mean, that's one of the realities of having a rule-your-own system, that creating each additional dashboard yeah. takes as much work. Yeah. So, and that's something that, when I mean, when we, last time we restarted the onboarding initiative, the big first piece of work that they did was establishing a better look at the current funnel by channel because we had added some more channels since the last time we had an onboarding initiative and they weren't instrumented properly and we didn't have like proper funnel tracking for various things and so getting that all set up and then getting it to a place where you can see it because if you have a large organization where you want to have people constantly aware of these things you have to have them up on screens somewhere and like somewhere meaningful that you see it all the time yeah well even I mean for me like I would basically like wake up every day and I would look at my dashboard. I'd be like, okay, what's happening? Like, what's I, and I knew like what was going on like at that time, and I'd go and I'd look at it, and just the like state that that puts you in mm-hmm. versus if I had woken up and then had to run a bunch of SQL queries. Yeah, <laughs> like it's a very different type of exposure and. Mm-hmm tangible yeah. almost or like visceral sense of like what's going on when you like look at it and it's immediately there and mm-hmm. it's becomes habitual versus you are like okay let me and then the problem is you might potentially only search for certain things right. based because you're primed because of what happened the day prior and you're mm-hmm. like not maybe looking at your like dashboard that you have set up that you're like this is my daily like all the things I need to check in on this mm-hmm. is my like go to status mm-hmm. page well one thing to add to that is I mean from your perspective as the founder those things matter to you so intimately and so ultimately yeah. uh, as an individual contributor or maybe like you know as a designer or a product manager or an engineer like I don't think first thing in the morning oh let me go look at the dashboards right, right? like that's not my instinct um, and so that's why it's so important to have them somewhere that you can't close right like we have monitors above the desks that mm-hmm. in the in the shared pod area and those have the dashboards on them and that's something actually I might have 
been the one who did that. Mm. Um, at one point, they had, like, our crash rates for various things, and I was like, no, these need to have, like, our product North Star metrics right. up here, and I guess North Star metric and other affiliated product metrics that we're watching every day. Like, if we're watching them at the head of product level, we need to be watching them and our initiative level. We need to be watching them at an individual level. Like, these need to matter to us. And you just, you don't always remember to look when, like, your yeah. job is, like, so focused on the ground and yeah. you're not thinking about the 1,000-foot view, but you need to be able to respond and react to things. So, so really quickly to, to wrap up the tangent that we went on there. So you were looking at monthly active users uh, as your North Star, mm -hmm. um, part of your kind of equation, mm -hmm. whether you thought of it that way or not. Um, so I just wanted to share a little bit about the Yammer North Star. Um, have I ever talked to you about this, actually? I don't know if you know what we measure. Mm, maybe. <laughs> so, so we look at Dow and we look at Mao a lot. And we also, so daily active usage versus monthly active usage. We also track the ratio of that. Um, a lot of products will compare. If you have a one-to-one -one ratio of daily active to monthly active, that means that any user that comes in in the month is coming in every single day that month. And that indicates a very high stickiness. Um, so we, and also, basically, like nobody gets a like. Yeah, nobody gets a one. Happen. That's absurd. <laughs> That's like absurd. Facebook, which is like world class for DAU MAU, is about fifty percent. Is it fifty? Interesting. Yeah. And that's, I mean, world class. They are the definition, probably, of yeah. stickiness. They're probably, yeah, they're probably like the highest DAU MAU. I wonder what Snapchat product. is. I actually, actually, no, that's maybe not true because I do know Facebook is notoriously good at having a really high DAU MAU over like a long period of time for an established product. I do know that like a few years ago, Cow Talk had insane usage rates. Like it was over over fifty percent of the entire country of Korea. <laughs> was active on a daily basis. That's crazy. Like their their DAU MAU, but their their I mean their MAU was literally the entire population of the country. So in, in that way, it was like it was what? like really insanely high. Yeah. And again, that's yeah. I mean, we could talk a long time about like DAU MAU and product category and stuff. But yeah. Anyway, yeah, just, yeah, to, yeah. just to like say like a little context for like you're talking about it's like mm -hmm. one to one it's like yeah. but wait that's a minute that never thing. happens <laughs> like that never that's, happens so, I mean to, to tangent on our tangent one of the things that I, I love about uh, product metrics is that whenever you talk to someone who's not in product about what impact a change had or something I'm like this saw a 7% increase in you know some important metric I'm like OMG, 7% increase is gigantic. <laughs> like, if I see a 0.7% increase in something, I'm like, yep, that's great. Ship it. Yeah. And so it's it's interesting how, I don't know, I would say delusional people are before they start working in product about how easy it is to change metrics. Like, it's really hard to affect metrics in a meaningful way, meaningful metrics, like maybe page views or things like that, you, or button clicks you can get, but deep metrics around engagement, coming back again, things like that, those are really hard to affect. And to that point, the, the North Star for Yammer is the number of days engaged over a period of time. So it's... Um, it's D-A-U-M-A-U? So it's not D-A-U-M-A-U, it's per, it's per user. So we look at like how many users are coming back this number of days in this period of time. So this is our main metric when we're running a test. We have days engaged, so we'll have like 50% of users enrolled in the control, 50% in treatment, and then we check how many extra days did the people come in who are in treatment relative to the people who are in control. So days engaged. So it's it's towards DAU over MAU, but it's a little bit more granular. And this is something that our analytics team spent a fair amount of time developing in, gosh, I wanna say they developed this three or four years ago. Um, it's been some time. And at the time, they were, they were looking for what is the best predictor 
in a two-week time period that someone will be around three months from now. Mm-hmm. And so they looked at a whole bunch of different things and looked for what's the, what's the highest correlate to three-month retention because you can't run experiments for three months to find out if you should ship them. So we want to find what's the, what's the thing we can learn in two weeks that has the highest prediction rate for whether someone will be around in three months. Mm-hmm. And it was days engaged. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's almost like the... Ten friends seven yeah. friends in ten days, seven friends so, in seven days. I think it was, yeah, I think Facebook was seven friends in ten days, Twitter was thirty follows, or if you follow thirty people in ten days. Is this understanding so similar to what you guys yeah. are doing, it's like the end state is retention. Known. You yeah. know what you're aiming for and then you're trying to figure out what are the things that potentially could have led to that that exactly. we should be prioritizing. Yeah. And so we looked at all kinds of things uh, when they were first building this metric around, like, maybe it's having a certain number of people that you follow, because, you know, Yammer also has a following concept. Maybe it's something about the number of groups you join or the number of posts or, nope, like, the thing that it came down to every single time was the number of days within that two-week period that you had logged into the product. And every once in a while, I think probably about every 18 months or so, the analytics team will revisit this and and say, is this still the best correlate? Mm -hmm. Um, And we haven't found anything to beat it. Okay. I have a question. So there's one thing that they spoke about a fair amount in the book, which I've done and I have opinions on. So I'm curious to hear your opinions. Dark Um, No. They have, well, yes, but they have a lot of suggestions around surveying users, Mm -hmm. specifically surveying users who are no longer using the product or have churned or something like that. Do you guys, have you had any uh, interaction with that type of surveying? Yeah, absolutely. Tons. So a few things to say. So first of all, I know when I was at Asana, the churn survey was something I had more familiarity with because Asana is a standalone product that you buy and then if you stop using, you churn, things like that. Yammer is slightly different in that if you buy Yammer, you've also bought Word Online and mm. um, Outlook Online and you know various other products across the suite. So churning from Yammer doesn't have the same connotation as churning from sure. a product that you're paying for. Sure. And that's a different team owns those kinds of concerns. We're mostly concerned at Yammer about like how much are people engaged. And we do care when people leave the product, uh, but not focus on the monetary aspect as well. Mm-hmm. But I, I know the churn surveys was, was a big part of the Asana workflow around prioritizing uh, feature gaps and things like that. We had, I think it was a weekly, it might have been a monthly update on, you know, here's the churn survey this month, and here's what's trending in churn results, like why people have said they're churning this month relative to last month and things like that. So definitely a bunch of that, uh, as well as just a bunch of surveys with existing users. We used to do a lot more at Yammer uh, before a year and a half ago when we upgraded our level of compliance to a new tier Mm-hmm. And at certain tiers of compliance, you lose access rights to directly uh, contacting gotcha. users. Yep. So unless they've given an explicit opt-in, sure. uh, we recently built another survey mechanism, though, for reaching them anonymously. So we're doing more of that now again. And I look at old survey results all the time. And one of the things that we do a lot—I mean, every initiative I've ever been a part of—we run several surveys. We'll like have a survey we'll create, and then we have a list of people that we can reach out to that work in companies that use Yammer. And so we're like, hey, you know, can you send this to everyone? Can you post uh, this in all your groups? And yep. so anyone who's like explicitly opt-in, we can then send them the survey and ask them to post it. And then those people opt-in. Um, so we do it all the time. Do you find these to be helpful? Super helpful. So this is one of the things that we use. Um, they, they mentioned this at one point in the book and something we talk about a lot at Yammer is that 
The data can tell you the what, but it can't tell you the why. And so we use surveys for the why. So whenever we have a really confusing A-B test result, for example, we might send a survey to try and understand a little of the why behind that. A lot of times it falls on the PM and the analyst to develop a, a narrative around the data, but sometimes you want to have qualitative support as well. Whenever we're building up a new initiative and we're developing um, new intuitions, I'd mentioned that that period of time before we kick off with engineers, a lot of times we'll send surveys to kind of get a baseline of like, how should we be thinking about this? How can we get outside of our own mindset? And then sometimes we'll do things where we'll, we'll send a survey, like we did this with our notifications. We had an assumption that people thought of our notifications as spammy. So we sent a survey to see if that was true. And we had this whole notifications perception survey, and we learned a bunch of stuff that changed our notification strategy. Uh, but one thing that we learned is that people don't actually really perceive our notifications as spammy, mm-hmm. um, not as much as we had thought. And we had hundreds of participants. Like It was a very robust study. So we do this really frequently. So the reason I ask is that, so I've done a bunch of, it actually wasn't overly purposeful at the beginning, but I did a lot of personal outreach to Quib members in the early days. And so I basically knew everybody who was using it for the first like few thousand members and then at a, you know, maybe every other person (laughs) beyond that. So I had somewhat of a relationship with everybody. And I did do some like explicit actual like surveying, but I would also, you know, meet people for coffee and people would feel free to email me and people would tweet at me and like people would give me a lot of feedback about the product all the time, which oftentimes is good. But I did find that specifically on the why did you churn or why are you no longer active or why do you want me to delete your account surveys that I did, I would never get a useful response. Hmm. I found all of my responses. And I question whether it was because perhaps the relationship that I had was too personal. But people would always be like, oh, I just got really busy at work. Or like, oh, I had this other thing come up. And I shifted. I did it as like a Google form that was just like a like there was no like me. I mean, obviously, I was on the other side. But for me, I found that asking people specifically about churn and why they're no longer active in, again, this one specific product. I like I stopped doing it because I was like, this is useless. I'm not learning anything. All these people are just telling me things that I know are not true. Or if they're true, they're things that are completely outside of my control. And they're not actually like, oh, I got busy at work doesn't really mean that. It means that like you, this product isn't important enough to me when I have a lot of things to do right. kind of stuff. Right. But Or is it like something else related to that? So I found that the responses that they were giving me required too many like logical leaps right. for me to come to the actual reason for right. it to be useful. Mm. So I don't really know like why they weren't useful, but I tried a couple of different formats because I thought I was like, it would be really great if I could actually get some of this data from these people. But yeah, I tried emails. I tried doing it as like, a, I would send people a link to a survey. I think I even had some people email other people, like, on my behalf to ask them, like, oh, I see you stopped using it. Like, why? Wow. Like, I tried a bunch of different ways, and I could never, and so I stopped because I was like, I'm, this is just a waste of time. Like, I'm not actually learning anything um, important. And at this point, again, this was one of these balances around I had a pretty good understanding and a model built out for new user acquisition. And I was like, I think it's actually, again, like hyper limited resources. I think it's actually better for me to spend my time over there on that Mm. versus trying to understand and resurrect these people who have churned. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, something that's kind of interesting to note, first of all, I think the personal aspect 
probably had something to do with it. Uh, the fact that you knew a lot of these people or like they thought of you as a person mm-hmm. who was sending them a survey as well as, as opposed to an organization. Because I, I believe the Asana turn rate had really high right. response rate. Yeah. And one of the other things that's interesting is if you're talking about a work product that you've been paying for, that you stopped paying for, you've already expressed really, really high intent to be paying for this thing. It's obviously solving a need that you thought was worth paying for. And if you churn from that, it's, it's quite likely that it's because the thing that you were paying for is now available somewhere else, cheaper, better, faster, in some capacity. So the churn survey is there. I mean, super high response rates. I think it's probably because it was a, an organization, uh, not a person sending that to them. But then also, it'd be really important in terms of prioritizing. Like, oh, I mean, it's, it's a way of establishing if there's a competitor that you need to be concerned about that comes into the space, things like that. Because, I mean, there's so many work tools out there. Like, you can never really know which ones are meaningful. But if you see that there's a particular one that a bunch of your customers are going to, like, that's a big threat. Um, so it really helps you prioritize things. So let me ask you this. Uh, one of the things... Riddle me this. What? Riddle, Riddle me, me this. this. Riddle me this. No, no. Uh, <laughs> so you mentioned that you used Optimizely, mm-hmm. and it's something that the authors spoke about beware of using some of these out-of-the-box products for measuring um, deeper engagement because they said, you know, Optimizely can only show you things like page clicks and they can't tie into if the clicker of that page down the line became a better engaged user. I haven't had a lot of experience with Optimizely. I mean, I know we built our own experiment service long before there were things available out-of-the-box. Is that true? Because you used it. Like, it just ties to page clicks or button clicks? Yeah, so my use of Optimizely was solely for landing page copy experiments. So that's all I used it for. Right, which is what it's really for, right? It tends to be like a landing page optimizer or like a... And one of the reasons why that's important, again, for something... With growth in general, you want to spend your time on projects that will be high impact. And so the things that oftentimes are most high impact are things that sit at the top of the funnel. The thing that most potential users could interact with, those are landing pages Mm. often. I mean, unless it's a mobile app. But on the web, the landing page is the thing that the most people are going to see that could then potentially sign up. So, And your landing page specifically is the, like, about Quib stuff. It's not, like, the in-product experience they were anything. So anything that somebody could potentially land on as their first exposure to the product. Got it. So okay. they could be links that somebody else had shared and I had an iframe on it. Mm-hmm. They were article pages or comment pages. They were people's profile pages. They were like quib.com. They were literally any and all page that somebody could potentially. And again, those were all like ranked based off of like I would go and I would actually look at like which of these pages mm-hmm. are. Because I had some that were evergreen that would get you know, thousands, tens of thousands of views, like, fairly frequently, even though they were just, like, a random article, but Hmm. they just happened to have some sort of evergreen presence. And so I knew that that was the landing page for a lot of people Hmm. who could potentially sign up for Quib. And so using Optimizely on those pages to target whatever it was um, that was written on that page specifically for people who were not users, what can I experiment around? How do I talk about So if you land on this article and you're reading this article, what could I possibly put on this page that would then convince you to like, oh, by the way, this article is from this product thing that you should sign up for because maybe they've never heard of it and like blah, blah. So like right. experiments around that for copy. So I, I think we use the term landing page pretty differently. So mm-hmm. what doesn't qualify as a landing page on Quip? Would it be like my profile editing page or something? I mean, yeah, typically a landing page 
is a page that is specifically built for somebody to land on to take like an initial action. But I don't know if there's a different term for pages that happen to be what someone might first experience. Yeah. I just kind of talk about them as like... Because we have, so with Yammer, we, we call the landing page the first in-product, well, there's there's two. There's first of all the first, like, Yammer.com, mm-hmm. but then there's also the first in-product experience that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're signed in and you click Yammer.com, where does that put you in, like, yep. the home experience? So, like, on Facebook, the landing page would be, like, your news feed, right? And where you put that landing page, what you point it to is pretty important. You can imagine some version of Facebook where the landing page is your home feed, right? Where you like if I go to Facebook.com and I'm already logged in, it would show me like my own personal feed, which is I wonder what Pinterest does like a the aggregate board, things like that. So the landing page, the way we use that terminology is the thing that when I type in gamer.com, mm-hmm. the thing that the product shows you if you're already logged in. Mm-hmm. What is the landing experience? Yeah, so I guess how on? I'm using it is what page you land on. Like if there, there are multiple pages that you could potentially or- land on. I kind of wish we had looked this up before, but <laughs> like one it's like the pages. question, yeah, like how other people use it, because yeah. maybe they do use different, the terminal, I mean, we clearly use it differently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and again, this is literally, my company was me talking to myself, so <laughs> I probably don't use the words properly. But this idea of somebody can land on Quib in multiple ways. Mm-hmm. It's very, like, the number of people who land on Quib.com versus all of the other pages that, like, non-registered yeah. people yeah. land on is, like, tiny in yeah. comparison. And so I, therefore, have to, like, craft those pages for them to convert into users. Right, right. And so those are the pages that they land on. So those are yeah. potential landing pages for new users. There's a really interesting um, thing that's just kind of, I mean, it's obvious, but it's just kind of come to light here in this conversation, is that the Yammer experience is only a logged-in experience. Yeah. Like, there isn't yeah. a logged-out Yammer experience. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so the... Yours is kind of, you could have something in between. Like, you can have a logged-out Quib experience. I'm trying to think if there's other products that you can fully, I mean, there's there's obviously Google. You can, It's a, like a fully logged-out experience. Mm-hmm. You can just go to Google and find things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an interesting way to divide up products. Yeah. I hadn't really thought a whole bunch about before. Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah. in terms of Optimizely, yeah, that was mostly what I used it for. I did a little bit around, like, changing button copy, like, moving buttons, removing a bunch of copy, removing links to things, and just, like, really hyper-focusing, like, on one CTA, stuff like that. But it was mostly what I used Optimizely for was copy experiments. I would use it sometimes if I had to have something built, but there wasn't enough time. Uh, yeah, And I would I've just kind of mash it together and optimize it. I'd be like, there we go. That's kind of yep. what I need to happen. Yep. But then it just loads really slowly and is really buggy. So in terms of what you can track, though, with Optimizely, is it just clicks on things, you can't tie that into deeper engagement. Like, you, Could you look at Optimizely and say, what's the two-week retention number for people who saw this version of this page versus this other version? I don't remember. Yeah. I, use, I, I mean, it was like two years ago that yeah. I used it. They indicated no. They indicated that you can just track, okay. like, this page convert, or this button converts more right. than this other button. Because I guess then it's a question of, like, what do you have integrated on your own side and how you're tracking. Right. So I don't remember how they all fit together. And yeah. again, this is one of the problems of like having so many of these. Like all these tools are great and they allow you to do all this stuff, but they don't flow through. Yeah, they're difficult to make them all talk to each other. Yeah, data is not easy. No. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, we off, when we are tracking experiments, we have multiple different types of metrics that we look at. And so one of them is obviously, we, we look at like the hyperlocal metric, which is 
are people clicking this thing or that thing? And that tends to tell us if there's a bug or not. Like if, if we see clicks to a button go to zero after we'd make a change to that button that tells us, oh, there might be a bug in that. Yeah. Um, it's usually how we use those kinds of metrics. And then we use kind of secondary metrics, which help us tell the narrative. Like, for example, if I change something on the home page that more prominently displays our group discovery experience. And then I, I look at, like, group visits and group joins and things like that. That'll tell me, like, a little bit of the narrative. Like, are group visits and group joins going up with this discovery experience or are they going down? Like, that helps me tell a little bit of, like, oh, I think users, when they landed, they went and clicked on this and joined a group instead of, like, responding to a thread that they could have seen, blah, blah, blah. But then what we're actually measuring success on are really deep engagement metrics. So even though I may have uh, tested a group discovery experience and boost group joins and group visits and things like that, in the end, it's only successful if we're seeing our deep metrics move, which is like days engaged. Are they coming back more often? Are they posting more often? Are they better retained? And so it's, it's interesting to think about these three different tiers of metrics and the fact that out of the box solutions can really only give you that super surface level, the hyper local click metrics basically. Yeah, I think that's generally one of the issues with all of these out-of-the-box solutions, that they're really quick, they're really easy, they're helpful to spin up dashboards and charts that you can look at quickly. But in terms of, like back to the previous point of, it seems like at this point in time, everybody still needs to roll their own custom solution. Yeah. One thing I wanted to touch on on the experiment stuff uh, before we leave that topic, they had a section in the book that I just loved called Control Always Wins. Mm. Did you remember that? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a section about how if you're running all these experiments, it's pretty obvious if something's a really dramatic fail. Yeah. And it's pretty obvious if it's like a really good win. But there's a lot of gray zone in the middle where you can't quite tell. And they have a strong rule that when you can't tell, and you have to like pick it apart, and you have to like do really deep investigation to figure out what happened and if you think it was good, you just default to whatever it was. The experiment did not win. The control won. And I do just you, Do you love guys it. do that at Yammer? Yeah. So it's really, it's interesting that, um, first of all, I would say that, yes, we do. But what's interesting is we don't call it out. We don't say, like, when we run an experiment, it can fail, it can win, or it can default nothing. And mm-hmm. in the case of default, what do you do? So one of the things that I've started doing is... When I'm writing a spec in the first place and when I'm setting up the hypothesis and the whole experiment design, I have a section for what to do in case it's flat. Mm-hmm. What do you do if you can't tell who won? And there are cases, I think, actually when control shouldn't win. For example, if it, the treatment is also perhaps a performance win. For example, if you test something that speeds up page loading and you can't tell that it affects engagement very deeply, but it's sped up page loading, like that's great. You're going to ship that. By the way, speeding up page loading always makes <laughs> metrics go up. Like we've done so many experiments. Any like anytime you make something load faster, you're gonna see increases in, in metrics, which is kind of fascinating. But there's a lot of times where the the experiment, if it's flat, was a big refactoring win. Like you threw out some old crafty code in the course of creating this experiment. So you'd ship the experiment in that case. So I always specify at the very outset what to do in case of a flat test uh, because I've seen, like earlier in my career at Yammer, I saw a couple tests where it was flat and there's just a lot of consternation around what to do and you just want to avoid that ambiguity and like defeat it at the beginning. So that's my my general advice is define what you want to do in case it's a flat test before you even ship it. Yeah, because it's funny when I read that, I was like, I don't do that. I read it, and I was just like, yeah, I, I mean, I just kind of go off of gut. If I run an experiment, it comes back flat, and I'm like, I kind of like this one more. 
Mm, interesting. I'll just do it. So we have a really, really, I'll tell a great story. This is actually one of my favorite experiment stories. One of our analysts had done a lot of exploratory analysis on what makes a group take off. And so she had done some definitions of like, if a group, we, we had a, a really beautiful definition of a, a good group, which was a formal metric that we had developed. And so she did analysis on like whether groups become good or not and at what time in their life cycle and things like this. So she determined a few correlates for good groupness. Found these good groupness? F- yes, good groupness. Yeah. yeah. So we had like this good group metric. And so she's like, well, they, there's these four things that good groups tend to have. They tend to have A, B, C, and D with like this kind of um, correlation score. And so I was like, great, if we think that A, B, C, and D has a high correlation with good groupness, let's see if there's any causal effect. So it created this experience for checkbox, basically, or like, you know, this this new group experience of, hey, you just started this group, do A, B, C, and D. And we saw people were doing those things 30, 40, 50% more in the treatment group than in the control, like way more dramatic shifts in behavior. But we didn't see any shift in the goodness of the groups where that had happened. So we couldn't tell in treatment or control that this was actually causally better. It was a beautiful experience. Like, I loved it. The animations were great. Like, it was just really elegant. Uh, But it adds surface area to your code, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't move metrics in the long run. So, and this is actually one of the experiments where... um, I hadn't defined what to do in case it's a flat test. Mm-hmm. Um, I had I had success metrics, and they didn't go down, right. but they didn't go up either. Right. Yeah. And so we had a big conversation on the team about what to do about this because there were a lot of people who really loved the experience and they wanted to ship it. But there were a couple of people on the team, myself included, who were of the firm opinion that anytime you add a line of code to your code base, you're yeah. adding complexity and maintenance costs yeah. over time. Yeah. Uh, so we didn't ship it. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. It's a good story. I think it is like I know I know for me that the situations where I was kind of like fuck it I like this one more they were not additive yeah they were like I like this word on this button versus that word yeah and they yeah. haven't had a change and I, because I had such like a intimate connection with the product I was just like no that word is better yeah like that is what this should be yeah even though it was flat yeah, with copy tests, I, I do say that flat tests will take whichever copy we like better. Yeah, yeah. Um, some more stuff. I, I can't think of anything that like added I did that was that came back flat that was, like, actually complex in some way that I decided to keep. Because, again, I was, like, operating under very limited tech resources. So I right. was always super aware of not adding yeah. when, unless I actually had yeah. to. And, and there are cases where, like, if you're in a compete situation where you are losing people or people are turning because you don't have a feature and you add that feature right. and it doesn't actually improve right. metrics, like, right. yeah. you might still keep it yeah. if it doesn't hurt metrics. Yeah. Um, it's still kind of risky because, again, yeah. surface area yeah. in the code base. It's really difficult to—I I find that convincing people that— additional surface area in the code base is a bad thing, yeah. unless they're an engineer, and sometimes even if they are an engineer, yeah. um, just without a whole bunch of experience, yeah. it's it's really difficult to convince people of that, and yeah. so I, I find it's important to, yeah. to formalize the idea, that. Yeah, the, like, think of the technical debt conversation mm-hmm. is one that I think is always important with, especially if you are doing a bunch of tests and mm-hmm. you're running a bunch of experiments and you're slowly kind of, like, 
glomming on these little tests that kind of sort of win, and then you end up with spaghetti code, mm-hmm. and the technical debt of all of that is but even a even intense. Even code that is like a beautiful crystal clear interface, every line is technical debt. Because yeah. every line yeah, is yeah, something yeah. that you have to be able to look on a screen and understand and mm-hmm. ration and reason about before yeah. you can change something else. So no matter how pristine your code, every line is technical debt. Yeah. And also to that point, uh, technical debt around experiments. One thing that people oftentimes don't take into account is how you have to remember to go back and clean up the experiment right. <laughs> either way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of times I see that like fall through the cracks. We actually have a really beautiful bot in Yammer that will every week send a post with all the experiments that have been running for an exorbitant amount of time. I forget what the number of weeks is. It's just like, yeah. this experiment has been running for like 52 weeks, yeah. you know? And then tags all the people who were associated with the experiment and the experiment mm-hmm. system. And then there's this beautiful gif of Snape from Harry Potter going, this displeases me. Who is Snape? Uh, Snape from Harry Potter? I don't know Harry Potter. Oh my god. <laughs> okay, I know nothing we're about done Harry here. Potter. We're done okay. here. <laughs> Oh, man. So, yeah, control always wins. If you don't want it to win, you need to let people know in advance. And always remember that every line of code is technical debt. Or Snape or something. God. So embarrassed. Snape. Okay, so while we're still talking about... Technical debt. Technical debt. Um, I loved, loved, loved one of the points that they made in the book about how growth is often as much about what you remove as it is about what you add. Mm -hmm. And boy, do I believe that. Mm -hmm. So there's this this great saying, and I forget who's saying it is in the industry, that like the typical product life cycle is something's really complicated and difficult to do. So you have this idea and you go build a really clean and simple product. And then you get users flocking to your product because it's clean and simple. And then you start adding features for them until you become a complicated, difficult product. And then a new product comes to the space that's clean and simple, and all your users flock back away from you. Mm-hmm. And I just I believe that so firmly that it's it's incredibly easy to end up with a bloated product in terms of complications that serve like increasingly small percentages of your user base. Yeah. And so I think it's really important to try removing things often. It's difficult if you have a work product that people are paying you for. Because a lot of times people can have built workflows around a particular feature and how it functions, and then that can break if you try and remove some part of it. Um, so that's really, really difficult. I think in the social space, like, whatever, they're not paying. Like, Just remove it and see what happens. And if it, it, like, it improves user behavior and decreases product complexity, it's a total win. But I think, yeah, there's, there's the two pieces of, of reducing complexity. There's the user cognitive load and the complexity of like trying to figure out what all of these buttons do and what you're even supposed to do in the product at all. And then there's the engineering velocity effect of having just a really big product on the back end. Yeah, yeah I wrote a post about this oh, maybe two or three years ago called Sometimes Removing a Feature is Hard to Do or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Where I talked about just the idea of feature creep and how it's basically like one of the once you're a startup and you're in sort of the trough of sorrow often what you do is you're like let's add features and you just kind of stick all these features in and none of them really work the trough of sorrow the trough of sorrow you don't you do know about the trough of sorrow yes or should i explain the trough of sorrow i feel like there's a lot of other pieces to it that i don't remember though there's like it's this it's like the journey of a startup. Where yeah, like, so there's like the like hype, amazing, and like the like spikes. It's like boom, and then that's yeah. like your launch day, and people like, sign YC up. Demo. Yeah, and then it's like 
kaboom, and it drops, and then this this little, and then eventually you slowly start climbing back out again. But that initial like huge dip is called the trough of sorrow, which is you're like, oh shit, is this thing even working? Like, what do I do now? Oh my god, where did we go? What's happening? And so oftentimes what people do when they hit the Trough of Sorrow is they're just like, oh, shit, we need this feature and we should add this and we should add this and, oh, this new sign up method and, oh. And so it leads to feature creep. The other thing that happens is you have like a foundational product experience and, you know, you've hired a couple engineers to get there. And then all of a sudden you're like, "Uh, what do we do now? And then the engineers are like, well, we should just build some stuff. And so they start building stuff and then you end up with all this just like fluff that's not systematically contributing to the end goal and vision of what this product should do in the world. But yeah, I wrote this post. I forget exactly. I think I say in the post what feature it was. I forget right now what it was, but it was something about I removed something and people blew up. There was a couple. Yeah, there were a couple of people who got angry. I don't remember what it was. But yeah, I was just, and again, I think in my case, just because I had to be so thoughtful about technical debt and like my access to engineering time was extremely limited. And so I was hyper aware of like, I can't build things that will need to be maintained because I just like, it's hard enough for me to just maintain like the core product experience, Mm -hmm. let alone keeping things around that are not actually being used and are not contributing to growth, basically. Mm -hmm. It just gets so much harder the bigger you are. Because I see like how yeah. much trouble we have at Yammer. I know how much trouble larger products like Outlook have in terms of just the... You could have 0.01% of your users using a feature. But if you have hundreds of millions of users, right. that's a big number. Yeah. So yeah. like, cull them early. Yeah. And also be really thoughtful about adding things. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I mean, people think a lot about like how difficult it is to create product, but it's... I think you mold product, and I think it's an additive and subtractive process. And when you're adding stuff, it feels like it's like, oh, I have to go dig up the clay to add to this pot. Like, that's a lot of work. But taking stuff back out, I think, is actually more effort. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe I'm saying that as a product manager because I, like, bear the brunt of people's frustration. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas I don't bear the brunt of, like, putting code right. to screen. Right. But, I mean, I really loved this book. I did not Yay. expect to love it. <laughs> I really, I mean, I came into this book being like, Sandy, I don't know what we should do this. I'm going to read it. but maybe And actually, I must say that when I first suggested it, you were like, let's push this. Let's do another one first. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> Sounds going to be great. I mean, it's this bright red, aggressive color. It's yeah. like all about hacking yeah. and growth. And yeah, no. Um, but I really loved it. I mean, I have a lot of things that I would go tomorrow morning and start applying uh, at Yammer. Um, I have things like if I were at a, an earlier company, a younger company, there's things that I would start putting into effect and be more thoughtful than I think people were early days of Yammer. Yeah, I mean, it's on some of those points, like surveys, I think we have survey tools at Yammer that are fresh that uh, I haven't been taking as much advantage of as mm-hmm. I could. Yep. Um, I really rely a lot on historical surveys that we've done in the past years, but... I have access to a survey tool that I'm not using as much as I could. I don't have the best dashboards, I think. I mean, I could be pushing for a lot better dashboards. Um, I think there's much work to be done in how we track experiment results. Um, It's really easy, you know, if you have a conversation, because, you know, we have conversations in Yammer all the time, and, you know, we tag them with experiment results, hashtags, and things like that, but it's not a very systematic way to archive that knowledge, and I want that knowledge to be more accessible across the organization. 
And then if I were starting at a, a company that were younger, fresher, kind of figuring this stuff out for the first time, I would spend a lot of effort very early on focusing on logging and what the approach to logging events was going to be, what they'd all be called, where they'd go, what tables, would look, things like that. And then, I mean, even if the the way they have the growth, they have, they have like a playbook for how to how to run the meeting for your growth right. team, yeah, yeah. right? Like yeah. spend five minutes doing this and then 15 minutes doing this. And yeah. then it's just like all these things that you can just, you can imagine putting to work immediately. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I really liked it, too. I thought, um, like I said at the beginning, the ideas were at a very appropriate level. Like, they talked about high-level stuff. They talked about, like, this is why benchmarks are important. This is why you should look at things that other products in your category are doing versus, like, yeah, this is what should be in the meeting. But it wasn't just all tactical level. It was, like, a nice spread. They spent, I think, an appropriate amount of time on each sort of level and then they were very holistic in terms of what growth actually is and what it means. Their advice was not overly focused on just if you're an e-commerce company mm. or an IoT company or a social product. Like they were, it's applicable across product categories, which is great. I mean, I'm really happy that we read it. I knew it would be good uh, knowing both these guys and what they know. I was like, this is going to be actually legit. They know what they're talking about. But they did also, I think there's other books that we've seen where we're like, oh, that person's an expert in that topic. That book will be good. But they weren't quite able to pull off actual, like, quality content. Whereas mm-hmm. this book, I think, is really great. Yeah. I would I would venture five ponies. Oh, my goodness. I would venture five out of five, five ponies. Five ponies. I, I think in terms of a uh, book for product managers— for our craft. Yeah. Yep. This applies across the board. I mean, there's so much I take out of this, even not running a growth org that sure. I'm going to do just day to day. Sure. I think it's one of the most spot on. Here's how to be really good at this stuff. Yeah. I feel like I can't give out a five. I know. Five is really hard, though. I'm right? going to go four and a half four just because I feel like five is like perfection. <sighs> and I feel like. Well, I'm not going to do five with bows. <laughs> Oh, okay. Okay. Just five ponies. So it's okay. not, it's not the... I'll do four and a half ponies with bows. Got it. Right around there. Yeah. It's quite good yeah well thank you everyone for listening this is the clearly products book club podcast you can find us on twitter at clearly product and you can find each of us individually on twitter as well i am sandy mac s-a-n-d-i-m-a-c and i'm at tweet anna marie thanks everybody for listening hope you enjoyed what we were chatting about hope you get some time to read the book and that it's helpful to all of you And remember as well that you should go to our website. You can sign up for the newsletter. That's just clearlyproduct.com. And also make sure to subscribe to the podcast itself so you can listen to us next time. 